UNFTR. Okay. Play the ridiculously long Black Rock Disclaimer. All right. This information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah. How can I spice this up a little bit? Hmm. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. Okay, okay. And now let me add a little bit of many faces. Razzle-dazzle. Let's go. Oh yeah. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward... But our speaker tonight is Larry Fain, the CEO of BlackRock. Any forecast me will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion. Speaking of financials, guys, uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink's annual letter out this morning and the world's largest asset manager announcing the firm will make climate change a focus of all of its investment strategy. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K. and non-European economic area, EBM countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the financial... We're continuing our Fox Business exclusive interview with BlackRock Chairman and CEO Larry Fink. Telephone, plus four four. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy But it's fun because he curses Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Overcaffeinated members, Kryn G, Jennifer S, G. Wilkie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brian, Awesome A, Ahsoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. This isn't the hit piece that you want it to be. Aww. That's okay. It's important to have an open and honest conversation about companies like BlackRock and others that we'll cover in our Enablers series. Wait, we're doing another series? Oh, yes and no. We're going to sporadically populate the feed with takedowns of large institutions that have a controlling interest in our lives, whether we're aware of them or not. The companies we're going to cover are true enablers of the capitalist and neoliberal model, and oftentimes, as in the case of BlackRock, unapologetically so. The ones who do the devil's bidding. BlackRock is often the subject of conspiracy theories, which makes it a titillating topic for sure. It also makes it more difficult to separate fact from fiction, even in some of the conventional coverage of the company. For example, you might have heard that BlackRock is buying up single-family homes and bidding up the prices, thus causing a housing crisis. Or that it has ties to the Chinese government and is funneling U.S. money into blacklisted Chinese investments. Or that its senior executive team is involved in a child death cult and drinking baby blood in a bid to live forever. I think that's Hillary Clinton. Whatever. Bottom line is that if you're looking for a boogeyman on Wall Street, 
BlackRock is an easy target because it actually does have a hand or a wallet in every corner of the global economy. On the flip side, BlackRock found itself as a target for Republicans for being too woke by demonizing the fossil fuel industry and pushing green and socially responsible investments. Point being, as with most conspiracy theories, there's always a hint of truth or logic that drives these narratives. It doesn't take much to extrapolate some wild theories when the company in question controls a platform that moves $10 trillion throughout the global economy. Yes, $10 trillion. So to do this the right way, we'll have to debunk a few of the more salacious rumors about the company, define what BlackRock actually is, and explain what it is about them that makes me say, You're simply the worst, a and a curse, than anyone, UNFTR is also sponsored by our unfucking overcaffeinated members, W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. Bank or no bank? You decide. Is BlackRock the devil? Or even the devil's banker? Wait, is BlackRock even a bank? No, no, and maybe. But it makes for a catchy title. That said, BlackRock is far from innocent. A company of its size doesn't get to where it is by playing nice or being magnanimous. And what I'll argue today is that its detractors are focusing on the wrong things. So let's level set with a few definitions for those who don't work in the financial industry. For those of us who exist on the periphery of the global financial system, the jargon can be a little confusing. Like any industry, it has its own lingo, its own rhythm and rules. Because BlackRock occupies so much market and mind share, it's helpful to understand what exactly it is. And here we go. Investment Banking an investment bank is a financial institution that primarily acts as an intermediary. It facilitates transactions such as initial public offerings, which is when a company goes from being privately held to publicly traded. It can also act in an advisory capacity to institutions such as pension funds and other large institutions that manage large inflows of capital and investments. These companies typically make money on fees for the services they provide. So one of the things that you might have heard people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren advocating for is the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. This was an act passed in 1933 to separate retail banking activities from investment banking activities. We'll cover retail banking in a moment, but essentially the idea was to prevent investment banks from accessing consumer deposits to use in risky investment strategies, basically prohibiting them from gambling with your money. Recall from our Clinton series that this act was repealed late in Clinton's tenure to make banks more competitive in the global financial market. Long story short, it didn't take long for investment banks to fuck around with our money and bring the world to the brink of economic collapse. But I digress. So these are the real Wall Street cowboys, as it were. 
Most often, people associate investment banking with companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, the big three. So, is BlackRock an investment bank? Nope. But it owns 7% of Goldman, 6% of Morgan Stanley, and 6.5% of J.P. Morgan Chase. It owns these banks, but it's not one. Is that the deal? That's the deal. Sure. Makes sense. Depository institution. This is any institution that can hold on to money. There are essentially three different types. Commercial banks, which hold corporate money but typically have retail divisions for consumers. Thrifts, which are basically just savings banks. And credit unions. Credit unions are distinct because they're actually member-owned rather than corporately held. So when we refer to BlackRock as a bank, it's a little misleading. BlackRock is a fiduciary, but it's not a depository institution, a key distinction that will be important in a bit. The big depositories that people are most familiar with are banks like Bank of America, Citigroup, or Wells Fargo, to name a few. So those are banks and BlackRock is not. Got it. That's right. Except that BlackRock owns 3.8% of Bank of America, 8% of Citigroup, and four and a quarter of Wells Fargo. Ah, so not a bank, just an owner of banks. Makes sense. Capital investment firms. Again, these exist along a spectrum as well, but are usually distinguished by having high net worth individuals as members or shareholders. That's because the commitment of money to certain investments is typically very high and for many years. Examples are venture capital firms that invest in the early stages of private company startups. These are high risk, high return. Private equity firms invest in the companies that made it past the venture capital stage and may or may not be on their way to going public or just going through extreme growth. Then there are hedge funds, which are typically guided by a certain strategy and have the ability to leverage their investments. Private equity firms are usually looking to build wealth through growth and value by investing directly into a company and oftentimes having significant influence over management and directors, private equity operates more like a strategic partner. Hedge funds, on the other hand, are typically in it for the short run and looking to turn a quick buck, but a big buck. They're usually less regulated and take on institutional and individual money from accredited investors that know what they're getting into because, as the name suggests, hedge funds typically zig when the markets zag. That's why they're used as a hedge against the norm. Big private equity funds, the ones that really move the market, are firms like KKR, Blackstone, and the Carlyle Group. These three companies alone hold about $1.5 trillion in equity assets around the globe. Okay, finally, so BlackRock is a hedge fund, or a private equity firm, or both? No, silly. But it does own 4.2% of KKR, 3.9% of Blackstone, and 2.1% of Carlyle. Hmm. Once again, you've made your point by not making your point. BlackRock isn't a bank, but it owns the biggest ones. It's not an investment bank, it just owns them. And it's not in private equity or venture capital, but it owns a chunk of the biggest players in this field as well. So what do we call this not bank that isn't a private equity, venture, hedge, fund, retail, depository, investment banking firm? I'm glad you asked. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. Simply put, asset managers manage money on behalf of individuals or institutions and invest them in vehicles that hold the promise of growth and value. Stocks, bonds, insurance products, etc. Along the spectrum of asset managers, there are different roles with different levels of responsibility, like brokers, 
People are companies that simply place trades as an intermediary but have no fiduciary responsibility. And a fiduciary, by the way, is a person or a company that is required to put its client's interests ahead of its own by law. So what's fascinating about its position as an asset management company is that BlackRock is a public company owned by many of the firms they hold positions in to produce the returns that go back into the pockets of the shareholders, which are also their investors. Get it? It's quite the circular flow of money. It's like me giving 10 bucks to 99 to invest in Manny Faces Media, which owns a stake in UNFTR. Wait, it does? It's a hypothetical, Manny. Shouldn't be. Can we do this another time, please? All I know is someone owes me a commission for making this trade. Oh, for the love of... All right, listen, what I'm driving at is that conflicts of interest abound in the world of BlackRock. But before we even get there, it's worth exploring how a company that started as a division within another firm 34 years ago and was bought out 28 years ago became the single largest asset management company in the world when it only went public in 1999. <laughs> Running out our sponsors for today, this episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Ismail. Chapter 2 Birth of a Giant. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story. Remember what you said. You promised me you said you would. You gotta give in, so I'll be Larry Fink was having a bad day. A terrible one, in fact. The darling of First Boston became a victim of his own design when his division at the company lost a hundred million in one quarter in 1988. This son of a shoe salesman, who's credited alongside Lou Ranieri for inventing the mortgage-backed security and built a multi-billion dollar portfolio with MBS at the core, had underestimated the risk profile of his holdings. Never mind that it was a fraction of what he'd gained for the firm or that the portfolio would recalibrate and go on to be an unparalleled success until the eventual collapse of the housing market. Larry Fink was kicked aside and left for dead. But as the saying goes, you can't keep a good man down. Salvation lay only a few months away when a man named Steve Schwartzman came calling. Schwartzman himself was a lion in the jungle and was looking to diversify the offerings of his company. And that company was Blackstone. You mean Blackrock? No, I mean Blackstone. Blackstone created Blackrock and... Uh, all right, will you just listen? Okay, sorry, sorry, continue. As I was saying, Steve Schwartz... Oh, fuck it. Steve Schwartzman was and is an icon on Wall Street in his own right. In their book, King of Capital by David Carey and John Morris, they detail the rise, fall, and rise again of Schwartzman and his plucky band of Wall Streeters who founded Blackstone. Blackstone was fairly original at the time. Coming off the heels of blowups at leveraged buyout firms and the cutthroat nature of exploitative investing, Schwartzman sought to create a different animal by picking the best, most profitable parts of other businesses. He focused first on advisory services, basically consulting on mergers and acquisitions, a highly profitable area because it requires no capital, just smarts and connections. While it was slow going in the beginning, he cultivated a solid reputation and that part of the business did begin to grow and it funded their other interests. 
Private equity was among those interests and is primarily what Blackstone is known for today. Another was asset management, and that's where our protagonist, Larry Fink, rejoins the story. As Carrie and Morris write, quote, In February 1988, Blackstone corralled Lawrence Fink, a pioneering financier and salesman. He was considered the second leading figure after Solomon Brothers' Louis Ranieri in the development of the mortgage-backed bond market. At the time, Fink was about to lose his job at First Boston, and his unit racked up $100 million in losses in early 1988. But Schwartzman and Peterson had, from the start, hoped to launch affiliated investment businesses and thought Fink was the ideal choice to head a new group focused on fixed income investments, end quote. So Larry Fink went about building a considerable asset base within Blackstone. Forgotten was the $100 million loss at First Boston, but new troubles were on the horizon for Fink. Schwartzman and Fink were similarly built in terms of competitiveness, and the two would eventually look to part company. It's not one of those famous Wall Street fallout stories, but it became evident that the company just wasn't big enough for both men. So in 1994, Blackstone split off its asset management division and sold it to PNC Bank for $240 million. So BlackRock, formerly a division inside Blackstone, was now its own company even though it was owned by PNC Bank, but it was on its own and able to set its own course to grow as an asset manager. Now that $240 million was a decent chunk of change at the time, and Fink's BlackRock was managing more than $23 billion in assets when it sold. But even still, few could have imagined just how far Fink would go in building the base of assets from this point, especially Schwartzman. Now I'm just getting warmed up. As Carrie and Morris write, quote, BlackRock went on to surpass Fink's headiest dreams. Over the next dozen years, it grew into an investment empire comprising $1.2 trillion of assets, mostly fixed income and real estate securities, reshuffled its ownership, and went public in 2006. By 2010, BlackRock was the world's biggest publicly traded money manager, twice as big as its nearest rival." End quote. In 2008, there was a financial crisis looming, and the incoming Obama administration wound up pulling Fink inside the most delicate conversations to see how the Wall Street scion, once cast aside for improperly assessing the risk of his portfolio, could help assess the riskiest assets on Wall Street and the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. There, among the biggest names in finance and government, was the son of a shoe salesman, Larry Fink, who was able to maintain a remarkably low profile thus far, considering the rapid ascension of his firm. A Vanity Fair article from 2010 was one of the first real public outings of Fink as a master of the universe. Prior to this, he was extremely well known on Wall Street, don't get me wrong, but he was hardly part of the high society social scene or a household name by any stretch. That was all about to change during the financial crisis. As the article notes, quote, at the height of the disaster, when the American economy was on the brink, it was to think that Wall Street CEOs, including J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon, Morgan Stanley's John Mack, and AIG's Robert Willemstad, turned for help and counsel. As did the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, whose top officials turned to think for advice on the financial markets and assistance on the $30 billion financing of the sale of Bear Stearns to J.P. Morgan, the $180 billion bailout of AIG, the $45 billion rescue of Citigroup, and those of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at $112 billion and growing." End quote. So the reason that Fink was the go-to man at the time 
went beyond his personal acumen. See, Fink had another secret weapon, a technology solution launched in 1999 that the firm had been refining each and every year, a risk assessment platform named Aladdin. Manny, roll clip. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin! Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? How about Aladdin? Oh, shit. My bad. Here you go. His open secret to success is a massive computerized system called Aladdin, which can instantly monitor millions of trades and analyze outcomes for millions of portfolios based on even slight shifts in the economy. So Aladdin, broadly, is a technology platform that assesses portfolio risk based on its assets and multiple exposure inputs. As a recent Financial Times article notes, quote, Today, it acts as the central nervous system for many of the largest players in the investment management industry and, as the Financial Times has discovered, for several huge non-financial companies, end quote. Now, this latter point is an important distinction. We live in an era of conglomerates and behemoths, and the lines often cross. Some of these, such as Apple and Google and several sovereign wealth and pension funds, all rely on Aladdin to manage their risk profile and balance their portfolios. Again, here's FT. Quote, Today, $21 trillion sits on the platform from just a third of 240 clients, according to public documents verified with the companies and first-hand accounts. That figure alone is equivalent to 10% of global stocks and bonds, end quote. This platform adds a crucial element of diversification to BlackRock's holdings. No longer is it simply an asset manager. It's a tech company. Not only does BlackRock manage the flow of trillions in investments into its own ETFs, which stands for exchange-traded funds, essentially large pools of capital that invest into sectors of the economy, certain indices or markets, etc., but it also provides the risk assessment tools for competitors and clients alike. Given the sheer size of its influence over the global financial system, it would make sense that BlackRock would come under an intense level of scrutiny. But the opposite is true. During the negotiations in the financial crisis, policymakers attempted to rein in the influence of financial institutions that were, quote, too big to fail. You all remember it, right? All except Larry Fink, who was behind closed doors in the White House when these decisions were being made. Here's how they got around it. Because BlackRock wasn't considered a fiduciary, meaning they only interact with funds as they pass through their systems and they don't actually hold on to them, it was determined to be exempt from such scrutiny. Pretty sneaky, sis. FT highlights some of the risk associated with this decision to allow BlackRock to operate outside of such regulatory purview. Quote, Aladdin's sprawling influence has prompted fears that it, or BlackRock, could act as a choke point if either faced a shock, a cyber attack, a rogue line of code, or a sudden crisis for the company, destabilizing the financial system, end quote. Moreover, because it operates as a black box of sorts, BlackRock operates somewhat on the honor system that it will provide honest assessments of the market, certain indicators, and even understand the opaque decisions being made by algorithms on the other side of its tools. Now consider the layers of conflict that exist. Here's an example. BlackRock is one of the major owners of Apple, 
through its ETFs as well as direct investments that it maintains on its balance sheet. As such, it has a significant say in the boardroom. But Apple is also a customer on its own of Aladdin. Myriad investment firms purchase shares of Apple through BlackRock or independently while using Aladdin to determine the level of risk. So now, insert literally thousands of the world's largest companies, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds for Apple, and a troubling pattern emerges. Chapter 3. Just how big is BlackRock? Let's start with their own words. Here's an excerpt from their 2021 annual report. Quote, We went from serving a handful of clients in one country to thousands of clients in more than a hundred. Our employees have grown from 8 to 18,400. And since our IPO in 1999, we've generated a total return of more than 9,000% for our shareholders, well in excess of broader markets, I would say. We generated $540 billion of net inflows in 2021, representing a record 11% organic base fee growth. Importantly, our growth was more diversified than ever before. Our active platform, including alternatives, contributed $267 billion of net inflows representing nearly half of total net inflows. ETFs remained a significant growth driver with a record net inflows of $306 billion. And our technology services revenue grew by 12%, reaching $1.3 billion. Blah, 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 blah. All right, so once again, we need to distinguish between the money that flows through their platforms and the revenue they generate on fees associated with that money. There's a tendency to generally quote the $10 trillion figure that flows through BlackRock or the $21 trillion that touches Aladdin. And don't get me wrong, these are staggering sums, but that's not revenue. Their revenue for 2021 was an impressive $19 billion, up from $16 billion in 2020 and $14 billion in 2019. What's even more impressive to me is its efficiency. On the $19 billion in revenue in 21, it posted a $7.4 billion operating profit, which is upwards of 38%. This company is a fucking ATM. Now, back to the money that it controls and the flows that it influences. With $10 trillion in assets under its control, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. That's more than the gross domestic product of every single country with the exception of the United States and China. BlackRock, Vanguard, and UBS, the top three money managers, cast more than 25% of votes at corporate shareholder meetings. To get a sense of its power, BlackRock has hired dozens of former government officials, at one point the count was 84, effectively giving it immeasurable influence over public policy. Perhaps not surprising to anyone familiar with the revolving door between the government and corporations the Biden administration has tapped several former and current BlackRock employees for influential economic roles, including BlackRock's co-founder and CEO, Larry Fink. According to Business Insider, quote, former BlackRock investment executive Brian Deese, 99 and I are having an argument about how to say insider, by the way, and you can leave this in, Manny. I say business insider, and she says that it's Business Insider, because you can't say it's Business Insider, because that's inside her. It's business. It's business. 
just ridiculous. Well, you're ridiculous and a pervert. According to Business Insider, quote, former BlackRock investment executive Brian Deese leads Biden's National Economic Council, effectively serving as his top advisor on economic matters. Biden also tapped Wally Adeyemo, a former chief of staff to BlackRock chief executive and longtime Democrat Larry Fink, to serve as a top official at the Treasury Department. Meanwhile, Michael Pyle, BlackRock's former global chief investment strategist, who had worked in the Obama administration before joining the firm, serves as chief economic advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris, end quote. Per Bloomberg, quote, the company is now seen as one of Wall Street's key conduits to the power center in Washington, a tag that was more closely associated with Goldman Sachs Group through prior administrations, end quote. Wow, they outflanked fucking Goldman Sachs. Now that's saying something. As for its employment of former government officials, here's what we know. Many of the ex-public officials served as regulators and central bank officials. One of the likely reasons for doing this, although they won't admit it, is to ward off regulations. According to the Wall Street Journal, in 2014, BlackRock executives, quote, obtained a copy of a confidential Federal Reserve PowerPoint presentation that argued part of the giant money manager could pose the same financial system risk as big banks, end quote. So BlackRock was particularly concerned about two slides that read, quote, if it looks like a bank, quacks like a bank, you get the rest. That set off an aggressive campaign by BlackRock to kill any potential regulations at all costs. As the journal reported, quote, the presentation, which BlackRock told members of Congress contained wrong information, galvanized the firm around a crusade to elude more aggressive oversight from the Fed, end quote. BlackRock was historically non-existent on the lobbying scene, even going back to the early aughts, as the aforementioned journal article lays out. But things changed around the time of the Great Recession, when the government had no choice but to institute a regulatory regime, the most notable being the Dodd-Frank Act, which was, of course, later neutered by the Republicans in 2018. But according to Open Secrets, the nonprofit that tracks corporate donations and lobbying, BlackRock spent less than $200,000 in lobbying in 2004 and employed only a pair of lobbyists. By 2009, its lobbying budget more than doubled, compared to seven years earlier, and it began to assemble a larger pipeline of lobbyists. By 2011, BlackRock was spending about $2.5 million on lobbying. The behemoth asset manager did not take kindly to comparisons likening it to big banks, especially in the context of regulations. In 2013, the journal reported that BlackRock and similar companies were alarmed by a report from the Treasury Department's Office of Financial Research that read, in part, quote, some activities highlighted in this report that could create vulnerabilities if improperly managed or accompanied by the use of leverage, liquidity, transformation, or funding mismatches include risk-taking in separate accounts and reinvestment of cash collateral from securities lending, end quote. Essentially, they were highlighting the risk that we're going to talk about a little bit later, asking and answering the question, is this a bank and is it too big to fail? So the government came calling again during another financial crisis, this time during the pandemic. You remember that? After being enlisted by the Fed to prop up the corporate bond market two years ago, the financial law expert William Birdthistle referred to BlackRock as the, quote, fourth branch of the government. That's too much power for one man to have.
Chapter 4. The ESG Hullabaloo One of the only two times we've referenced BlackRock on Unfucking the Republic was in our Conscious Capitalism episode. In that show, we were highlighting the rampant greenwashing on Wall Street with firms claiming ESG initiatives, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, essentially calling bullshit on the trend of large companies that do bad things to society and the environment, but spend their way to absolution through programs like carbon offsets, energy efficiency, and charitable donations. Here's what we said. Quote, let's look at BlackRock, huge firm, top of the top. They too have an ESG fund. So let's see, performance, key facts, ah yes, top 10 holdings. We've got Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Alphabet Class C, JP Morgan Chase, Tesla, Nvidia, and Johnson & Johnson, end quote. You do know it's incredibly gauche to quote yourself, right? I do, but I'm just trying to point out that I'm consistent, if nothing else. Anyway, here's what BlackRock itself had to say about its ESG efforts. Quote, Environmental, social, and governance investing is about investing in progress and recognizing that companies solving the world's biggest challenges can be best positioned to grow. It is about pioneering better ways of doing business and creating the momentum to encourage more people to opt into the future we're working to create. Our investment conviction is that climate risk is investment risk and that integrating climate and sustainability considerations into investment processes can help investors build more resilient portfolios and achieve better long-term risk-adjusted returns. We believe that society is on the cusp of transformational change towards sustainability. Companies, investors, and governments must prepare for a significant reallocation of capital. BlackRock's sustainability strategy focuses on two structural themes driving this change, transition finance and stakeholder capitalism, end quote. Here's where it gets a little tricky. And we find some strange bedfellows. The dark money group Consumers Research is running ads against corporations that perform what it calls, quote, woke capitalism. <laughs> yep, grievance-obsessed culture war evangelist Republicans are coming after capitalism. Welcome to the fold. Or maybe not. Groups like Consumer Research are specifically targeting BlackRock for purportedly betraying their clients by calling for divestment in fossil fuels and other ESG activities. In a so-called consumer warning released in August, the group inexplicably blamed BlackRock and its CEO, Larry Fink, for rising energy prices, saying, quote, Using trillions in investors' money, CEO Larry Fink waged war on America's energy company, the message reads, pushing a progressive climate agenda that has crippled U.S. energy production and left consumers with a hefty bill, end quote. This anti-ESG culture war comes as more than a dozen GOP states claim BlackRock is violating its fiduciary responsibilities. Two states, Texas and West Virginia, have effectively banned BlackRock and other ESG companies from doing business with them. West Virginia's ban includes five firms, including BlackRock and JPMorgan Chase. This is particularly hilarious considering that JPMorgan Chase continues to be the largest financier of fossil fuels out of any major bank in the world, to the tune of more than $380 billion between 2016 and 2021. But as for our friends at BlackRock, let's just say that we're not the least bit surprised that when the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, a nonprofit newsroom, reported on a meeting BlackRock executives had with Texas oil and gas regulator, yes, I'm doing air quotes, amid criticisms of its ESG efforts. Here's what the outlet reported. Quote, 
In January, BlackRock sent a team of senior staff, including Dahlia Blass, its head of external affairs, to meet Wayne Christian, a former Republican legislator who has chaired the state's oil and gas regulator since 2016. In his follow-up email to Blass, Christian noted the BlackRock team had said their environmental, social, and governance initiatives had been misrepresented by the media and that the company was supportive of the oil and gas industry and merely offers ESG energy-related investments because of client demand. He questioned BlackRock on the contradictions between these reassurances and its public stance on climate issues. Blass had already written to Texas officials to highlight BlackRock's support for the fossil fuel industry. We are perhaps the world's largest investor in fossil fuel companies, Blass wrote. We want to see these companies succeed and prosper, end quote. Now, among the most outspoken opponents of ESG is none other than Florida Governor Ron Death Sentence, the unofficial spokesperson for the GOP's culture war army. DeSantis was responsible for the Florida State Board of Administrators' decision earlier this summer to prohibit, quote, furtherance of social, political, or ideological interests in investment policy matters. Here's what he had to say after his proposal was adopted. Quote, With the resolution we passed today, the tax dollars and proxy votes of the people of Florida will no longer be commandeered by Wall Street financial firms and used to implement policies through the boardroom that Floridians reject at the ballot box. What ballot box? What is he even fucking talking about? Let's just say that we're not buying Ron's war on Wall Street. Why? Well, let's look at his campaign contributions. What's this from Politico? Quote, top Wall Street executives are pouring tens of millions of dollars into the Florida Republicans' upcoming re-election campaign, the outlet reported in August. Wall Street is obviously hedging its bets in the event that DeSantis becomes Trump's heir apparent. As with so many idiotic culture war clashes that bleed into the political discourse, ESGs have become the new way for officials on both sides to prove their ideological bona fides. Apparently, owning the libs on climate is now more important to this era's brand of Republican politics than the free market principles that they fetishized for so long. As we mentioned, more than a dozen states have moved to erase corporate ESG policies. Now, Democrats, on the other hand, have been bullish on the idea of having pension systems divest from fossil fuels, with Maine state legislature becoming the first to do that with its move in 2021 to divest $1.3 billion in such investments over five years. Now, maybe take this one with a grain of salt, but a Morgan Stanley white paper published in 2019 found no financial trade-off when embracing ESGs. Morgan Stanley compared sustainable funds, or ESGs, to traditional funds from 2004 to 2018, 10,723 in total. Here's what they found. Quote, Sustainable funds provided returns in line with comparable traditional funds while reducing downside risk. What's more? During a period of extreme volatility, we saw strong statistical evidence that sustainable funds are more stable. Incorporating environmental, social, and governance criteria into investment portfolios may help to limit market risk." End quote. The analysis also found sustainable funds to be less risky, noting, quote, "...sustainable funds experienced a 20% smaller downside deviation than traditional funds." This was a consistent and statistically significant finding, end quote. ESG funds have steadily gained in popularity over time. Between 2004 and 2018, sustainable funds grew 144%, according to Morgan Stanley. 
To believe the GOP's line of thinking, so-called woke investing would have existed well before the term was bastardized by Republicans and well before the Paris Agreement in 2016. That they led with Paris as a jumping off point for such investment decisions is belied by the data. Whether money managers like BlackRock are actually committed to such ideals, or whether ESG is even that real, is another matter entirely. Chapter 5. Bring it home, Max. BlackRock and its founder present an interesting conundrum in the world of finance, and frankly, in our daily lives. As Wall Street titans go, he's pretty conscientious. But the fact that he's in the position of emperor where finance is concerned is problematic in and of itself. And I'll get there in a second, but first, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's important to distinguish between conspiracy and reality. The first big conspiracy surrounding BlackRock in progressive circles is that it has somehow contributed to the housing crisis. Perhaps a case can be made indirectly, but in terms of deliberate attempts and direct investments, this theory doesn't hold water. First off, there's a small case of mistaken identity that can be found in the trove of faux online documentaries that attempt to draw a straight line between BlackRock and the purchase of single-family homes during the housing crisis. That's Blackstone, the private equity firm that birthed BlackRock, and only marginally so. In fact, BlackRock even has an entire page on its website dedicated to dispelling this myth. Now, obviously, I'm not going to take that corporate propaganda at face value. Pouring through their filings and looking at real reporting on the matter reveals something closer to the truth. Even The Atlantic, took great pains to clear up the confusion and point to the housing regulation and other investment firms as the real culprits, saying, quote, The U.S. has roughly 140 million housing units, a broad category that includes mansions, tiny townhouses, and apartments of all sizes. Of those 140 million units, about 80 million are standalone single-family homes. Of those 80 million, about 15 million are rental properties. Of those 15 million single-family rentals, Institutional investors own about 300,000. Most of the rest are owned by individual landlords. Of that 300,000, the real estate rental company Invitation Homes, in which BlackRock is an investor, owns about 80,000. So, to clear up a common confusion, the investment firm Blackstone, not BlackRock, established Invitation Homes. Don't yell at me, I didn't name them, end quote. Another popular story is that BlackRock is a backdoor to Chinese government control of U.S. companies and Wall Street. Again, this is a little dubious, but there is a kernel of truth. BlackRock was one of the few firms that was able to negotiate a waiver to invest in a Chinese conglomerate. Unusual? Yes. Devious? Not as much as detractors would like it to be. But there are areas that should raise some red flags. For example... The other time we referenced BlackRock on UNFTR, and that's with respect to student debt. Recall that we covered the evil that is Sally May. When we pulled Sally May's proxy report, we found that none other than BlackRock owned an 8.3% stake in the company. This reveals a different, disturbing pattern outside of BlackRock's outsized influence over politicians, regulators, competitors, megacorporations, pension funds, and nations. And that is its strategy of profiting from misery. The examples are everywhere. Like major stakes in conservative media outlets, 
Yes, even the outlets hedging their bets on a DeSantis future have to tread lightly around Fink, who often appears as a guest on business shows. BlackRock owns a 7.5% share in Sinclair Broadcasting, one of the worst examples of right-wing broadcast media. It also owns 12.4% of Fox Corporation. But it doesn't end with just conservative media. Together with Vanguard, the pair of asset managers are the top two owners of juggernaut media entities including Time Warner, Comcast, Disney, and yes, News Corp, which collectively represent 90% of the media ecosystem in the United States. And companies that do bad things all over the world. Companies like Nestle. Nestle recently became a big customer of BlackRock when it moved its pension fund management to the firm. Interesting considering BlackRock recently purchased 75,000 shares of Nestle in July of this year. It owns 265,000 shares of Bayer AG, formerly Monsanto. 5% of BP. 2.2% of Walmart with an $8 billion stake. A 7.1% stake in McDonald's. 4.1% of Dow Chemical. It also owns significant stakes in war profiteers Lockheed, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. Ironic, considering the first few pages of Larry Fink's letter in the annual report last year was dedicated to criticizing Russia for invading Ukraine. Cool. Do as I say, not as I do. Fink regularly appears in interviews talking about creating a better future and praising the system of capitalism. He's a firm believer in market solutions and views his principled stance on ESG as evidence not of manipulation, but based in the logic of free market capitalism. Now, I don't have a problem with that because he's not a Marxist economist or even a progressive. He sees great opportunity in a clean energy future, and that's fine. The problem is that we appear to be on his timeline exclusively. Another principled stance that I align with somewhat is his feeling toward immigration. Time and again, Fink lobbies for a more reasonable and compassionate immigration policy because he understands the value of increasing the workforce. See, he sees this as stifling economic growth, much in the same way that Milton Friedman did. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! It's not that they give a shit about a fair and equitable immigration policy. It's just that they believe in letting people into the country to take jobs at abusive wages so the rest of us can enjoy open restaurants. His fear relates to wage inflation due to full employment. Again, driving to the same result with very different intentions. So one might think that living on Larry's timeline is okay because he's the least bad option as America's shadow emperor. But when pressed on difficult issues, Larry will always land on the side of capital and profit rather than principle. Here he is being taken to task in a rare moment on CNBC. One of the people that, that, that speaks their mind about the conscience of Wall Street and capitalism and business in America. And last time you were on, I just thought it was kind of interesting when we were talking about Khashoggi and that situation with Saudi Arabia. I ask you flat out, would you end doing business with Saudi Arabia? You said, no, absolutely not. Do as I say, not as I do. Fink deftly dodges the discussion by essentially saying bad shit happens everywhere, so we have to choose our battles wisely. The life of an American journalist and the fact that Saudi Arabia is just a fucking shitty country 
wasn't enough to move Fink to divestiture, just as it wasn't enough to stop Biden from selling arms to the Saudi government. We're both part of the same hypocrisy. The bottom line to Fink is just the bottom line. The bottom line to the rest of us, where he and others like him are concerned, is that size matters. That's what she said. <laughs> A sustainable future is possible if we want it. But where so many important areas of the economy are concerned, getting there will be very much on Larry Fink's timeline. And while he talks a great game, we all know how this turns out. Your student debt is a line item in his P&L. That murderous regime is a partner in their boardroom. War and weapons are big business, as is fossil fuel. All-seeing technology in Aladdin that aggregates the world's data and mitigates risk means that only catastrophe will change the investment equation into fossil fuels. And that means it will be too late. Larry Fink took a seat at the table and traded his platform and expertise for a free pass. And now, he's too big to fail. Best we stop looking for conspiracies because the reality is far more terrifying. Do as I say, not as I do. No matter which camp you're in, ESG is a sham. Larry Fink is the unelected president of this nation. It's time to regulate BlackRock. Here endeth the lesson. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before any investment decision, and material is appropriate for you. BlackRock's a buy. A better than two and a half yield. Stock bounced big after PNC dumped its shares foolishly. And I think Larry Fink's good. Of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any share be offered. BlackRock is a financial giant. It's the largest investor on planet Earth with over $9 trillion in assets. If any funds are mentioned or inferred in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not be registered with the security figure of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator. In We've kind of gotten used to BlackRock beating the numbers, beating expectations. That's certainly the case this time around. Regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The scary fact is that this company does exist, and you have most likely never heard its name before. The company is BlackRock. Information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico. What is the issue you have with with BlackRock? www.blackrock.com forward slash One of the big things that's just happened actually is the BlackRock Hackathon. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings. Glad to be here with you. So take everything that we just heard and contrast this with an article that hit literally minutes before we came in to record. Here's how it starts. It's in the New York Times. 
A half century after founding the outdoor apparel maker Patagonia, Yvon Chouinard, the eccentric rock climber who became a reluctant billionaire with his unconventional spin on capitalism, has given the company away. Rather than selling the company or taking it public, Mr. Chouinard, his wife, and two adult children have transferred their ownership of Patagonia, valued at about $3 billion, to a specially designed trust and a nonprofit organization. They were created to preserve the company's independence and ensure that all of its profits, about $100 million a year, are used to combat climate change and protect undeveloped land around the globe. I'm not suggesting that BlackRock could do anything similar because BlackRock would go out of business. They would just fold and collapse. Of course, he could just sell the company now for billions and billions of dollars and do the same thing and dedicate it to climate change initiatives if he really felt that that was the way to go. But Larry Fink believes that he's the smartest person in the room and should be in charge of helping the global economy slowly migrate to a clean energy future. It's all well and good. I'm happy that at least he's thinking about it compared to you know basically everybody else that's in that same position. So that's why I say this wasn't a hit piece, but it should be a wake-up call to everybody that he controls so much of the fucking economy, the global economy, that we are going to go on his timeline, that it that our efforts towards a sustainable future will be very much on his timeline, absent any major interventions policy interventions, there's a difference between policy and financial interventions from the U.S. government and Chinese government and so on and so forth. So let's draw that distinction really quickly here. The American government committed the most money that it ever has towards a clean energy future and more sustainable future with the two bills that the Biden administration passed just this year. Kudos to them. But those are pure spending initiatives. There's some regulatory framework in there. There's some policy framework in there. But remember, I've made the argument before that the only type of government that could possibly move quickly enough to hit the IPCC target of one and a half degrees Celsius change would be a centrally planned authority and economy that just changes the regulations and fucking takes the pain. We will not suffer economic pain in this country. The institutions will not allow it. So what you see here is that our path to sustainability, even with somebody as well-intentioned as Larry Fink, and to draw the distinction again between him and others like Milton Friedman, I do believe that he is well-intentioned and he's putting his money where his mouth is. But also because he believes in that Morgan Stanley report that sustainability will ultimately be more profitable than conventional business because he recognizes that if we don't have a fucking planet, we don't have consumers. So it all does make sense. It's very logical in its approach. It's just that he's in charge of it, right? But when crisis hits, look at that Saudi Arabia example. Look at the fact that it's just very fucking obvious that Sally May is just a, is a detrimental company to the future of the United States by keeping millions and millions of students under an overwhelming amount of debt. These things are known, and yet their money is there. What's he fucking waiting for? There aren't alternative investments to these things 
There aren't other fucking nations other than Saudi Arabia, right? So he wants to be the big man in charge, but to be a real fucking big man, you got to be somebody like Shenard who's willing to just fucking say, I'm out. That's impressive. That's, that's fucking big time. You want to be big time, Larry? Take a fucking page from Patagonia. Sorry. I had a lot of fun putting this together. It's a lot of great resources. We have a shit ton of resources, by the way, including a book called King of Capital by David Carey and John Morris. And we linked a lot of resources in this one for you to go through, including the annual statements and the proxy reports for BlackRock and all the articles that we mentioned. It's a treasure trove of, of sources. Please don't get hung up on conspiracy when the reality is what we need to address. Companies like this need to be reined in. They need to be fucking regulated. And we need to have policymakers that aren't guided by the executives at these firms because the outcome then just becomes self-evident. Now let's move on for a sec here. As we mentioned in show notes this week, we've officially begun our fall razor period. Fundraising, friend raising, and hell raising. And we're looking to push the membership envelope this year to provide more resources to the show as we flesh out our growth plans for 2023 and beyond. So right now, our membership stands at 258, and we're looking to get to 420 by the end of the year. And when we hit that number, tell you what we'll do. We'll release an episode about marijuana legalization at the federal level. Fun. And maybe if that ever happens, we'll have our own line of weed. You know a guy, 99? I know a guy or two. Or a girl. Anybody. Yeah. In a Wii game. The Wii game? Like in Nintendo weed, Wii? In a weed game. Okay. Sorry. Now, the friend raiser is an effort to get unfuckers involved if financially contributing is too much. Remember that because we don't gate any content, we have to find different ways to grow. And finding sponsors that align 100% with our values is a challenge, but we're willing to wait. So you can also help us by spreading the word and having unfucking newbies write into the show to be highlighted in show notes along with the unfucker who brought them into the fold. Now, lastly, some hell raising. Because our listeners number in the tens of thousands and not the hundreds of thousands or millions, it's difficult to move the needle in local elections. So we're going to adopt two progressive candidates and we're asking unfuckers to throw their financial, social, or just moral support behind them. The first is Summer Lee of Pennsylvania, running for an open seat in the 12th. Summer is an amazing candidate who beat the odds when conservative Democrats and dark money groups tried to beat her in the primary. But she prevailed because she's amazing. We'll link her website in the show notes section so you can learn more about her, though we're going to have a separate show on our adopted candidates in a week or so. The second candidate is running against Ron Johnson for Senate in the great state of Wisconsin. All hail Nettie, McFleshman's rules. Knudsen for vice president. The Democratic candidate is Mandela Barnes, currently the lieutenant governor of the state, who bested a formidable slate of solid candidates to emerge as the winner in the Democratic primary. There's a lot more information out there on Barnes, and I would encourage you to look him up. So, let's get fucking noisy and make our presence known. Two important notes regarding these endorsements, by the way. First, when you promote them, please be sure to refrain from tearing down their opponents and trolling them. It's counterproductive and it only serves to harden their base of support. Secondly, it's conceivable that at some point in the future, 
we may be in a position to accept sponsorship money from progressive politicians, organizations, or PACs, and that is all TBD. And we'll take great pains to track the money and ensure that it's all above board. But for now, I want to be clear that our endorsement, our promotion, our adoption of these two brilliant progressives is entirely of our own doing, and there's no compensation in return for it. They're just the better candidates. They're solid progressives, and it's important that we send them to D.C. That's all I got for now, 99. What say you? Oh, that's all you got? That's all I got. Wow. I'm out of gas. Um, my only thought was I feel like governments and big companies shouldn't be using PowerPoint. <laughs> Seriously. It's my one takeaway. I don't have anything else. Because you know sort of somebody's sharing it, A. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Don't they have fucking microchips and like pencil erasers and shit like that? Like is like Mission Impossible style technology in the government like not a thing? Like they I mean, steal the thumb drive? And- probably not in these like cubicle offices that these PowerPoints are being created in by some 20 year old intern who picking his nose and watching Pornhub. <laughs> wow. Being like ESG actually works. Yeah. There's a rub with, with covering ESG in this way. And that is that out of one side of my mouth, I'm saying that ESG is bullshit. Out of the other side of my mouth, I'm quoting a Morgan Stanley report that says that ESG is actually really good. So there's a tension between those things. But the reason that those ESG funds are good is because of the companies that I told you are in them. They're fucking blue chip. They're 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 the best, most profitable companies in the world. It's like you can call it environmental, social, and governance, but it's really just saying Apple, Google, Johnson & Johnson, these fucking amazing capital machines who might have a sustainability report or do some nice things or have a DEI commitment, even though they're doing shitty things to the planet and the world, are they have such really such good internal programs that we're going to call them ESG. That's why I'm saying like it's just there's a tension there. It's a rub. It's fucking bullshit. But at the same time, small gains like divesting from uh, ammunition manufacturers and, and gun manufacturers and forcing certain companies to stop stockpiling guns and ammunition. Like, okay, that okay, good. But it just all feels so fucking performative, right? Because you don't have to have them in your portfolio. You can include nine other shit bags in your portfolio, take the 10th one out, and it doesn't change the fucking beta. You know what I mean? So I don't know if I did a good enough job of explaining that, but that's why it's fucking bullshit. I think you did. I think the reason why you stumbled so much during this recording is because you had to say BlackRock 6,000 times. BlackRock. It's like not a very easy on the mouth. And then the whole fucking chapter dedicated to Blackstone birthing yeah. BlackRock. Blackstone is easier to say than BlackRock, Black though. It is. BlackRock. BlackRock. It's the case. BlackRock. You know, I know a bunch of people that work at BlackRock. Why don't you marry them? They're fine people. It's the same situation again that we talked about before. It's like, and you can you can exist in this company and really buy into the culture. And if you listen to this guy on on certain programs, so I you know I listen at sort of a different level. Not not claiming that I'm um, so smart. I'm another Ooh. level of intellect, but like I he tore down uh, modern monetary theory. He blames, in my mind, some of the wrong inputs for inflation, and will stop short of criticizing his clients his customers for being the ones that are really the drivers of inflation. So it's like, to me, he is the classic liberal in the sense of 
you know, he just wants everything to kind of stay the same. For you mean the Milton top. Friedman's liberal or real liberal? Classic American political liberal, not classical liberal from an economic standpoint. There's a bridge between the two, but he's clearly not progressive. But he's not a conservative, right? So there's a lot to like about his presentation. Like, he is the Biden, the Obama, that milk toast, I'm going to preserve shit the way it is for the top 10% of the country right now and send some platitudes to the rest of you to let you know the smart people are in charge. It's okay. So it's like when you just peel below the surface of these interviews that he that he's in, you kind of start to hear and recognize certain language more so by what's omitted even mm -hmm. than what's being said. So there's implications to what he's saying, like the immigration thing. There's an implication to what he's saying about immigration. We need people to come across the border, he says. And he can say that by saying we need more compassionate immigration reform and we need to open the borders for legal immigration and allow for the dreamers to be you know, fully vested in the country. The subtext of that is full employment is a problem for liberals and people in Larry's position because you will have wage inflation at some point. Like, that's just part of the equation, which is also an okay economic equation so long as the other principles of a good progressive economy are intact and in place. But what he's saying is that classic Milton Friedman Chicago School concept of full employment equals about four, three to four percent unemployment. That's what they want because it means that the power is still in the employer's hands. It's still in the capitalist hands and not in the hands of the workers. Right now, it's a very tenuous situation because we're almost to the point when things settle out after the great resignation and all that kind of stuff and everybody stays in the jobs that they've taken and the great resignation is over. It's layoff season. It's it is layoff season and that's starting to happen too. Yeah, because the companies are going to be exposed for what they are because a lot of the fundamentals of the economy are really starting to come through in a meaningful way for them. So, it's all a lot, which means it's easy for somebody like Larry Fink to go on these programs offer these platitudes, say modern monetary theory is bullshit, and then come on a couple years later see, and say, see, I told you so, we have inflation now, which is what he's doing. That doesn't feel very liberal to me. <laughs> I, he sounds like just a regular, normal Democrat. He's a, a liberal Democrat, yes. But not I even liberal, I just Democrat. Democrat. So like Larry Summers is a, is a Democrat, right? Theoretically. He's that type of person that does not want full employment, that thinks that modern monetary theory is bullshit. Just like Biden thinks that it's bullshit. It's just like all these people say that it's bullshit, right? Yeah. I just mean like in terms of the heart of the word, that doesn't feel very liberal to me. No, but that's why we have to make such a distinction between liberals and progressives. If liberals, if in the Democratic wing of the party, the liberals would be the mainstream, the modern Democrats. But when did, or moderate Democrats. But when did moderate become liberal and liberal become progressive is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I think. Shouldn't they be separate? We've allowed Republicans to define these distinctions well, and then turn them back. into negative images of the fragments of the party where progressives are just out of their fucking minds, right? They're the extreme left, alt-left as they like to call it, but it's just being progressive is actually, you know, being a humanist. And yeah. All that fucking bullshit aside, Fink's platitudes feel good to a lot of people. And it's why he can get away with not offering maybe the full picture, or we're get just gonna we're just willing to consume the picture that he's selling to us, and 
Very few people, which is why I pulled that one CNBC clip, which is surprising to me, very few people in the media are going to challenge him on it because he fucking owns them. Are you going to be the fucking person that challenges, like ruthlessly challenges Larry fucking Fink when you know that he owns 7.5% of your company or 12.5%, like if it's Fox? Holy fucking shit. John Oliver would make fun of AT&T and they owned HBO. That <laughs> Doesn't that count? John Oliver. John Oliver. John Oliver's. John Oliver. John Oliver's we don't talk about him enough. He's great. And he's useful in this tiny way that we're useful. Meaning not important enough to really move at all. But John Oliver has, has made more impact, I would say, on specific issues than even Jon Stewart did, except for Jon Stewart's pet issues. You know, like, I mean, he's important. He, don't get me wrong. He's important. And he really speaks truth to power. Yeah, I mean, I've he's also not... taken issue with some of his stances on things, though, because the, the research isn't as deep and as foundational as sometimes Emerson's. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean... He has a weekly 30-minute show. We have, you know, whatever. So, and there's also, there's just only so much that you can cover. And a I mean. staff of writers. I wonder what their budget is compared to ours. Well, yes, of course. But how much can you get across in, that's what I mean, in mm. 30 minutes? Yes. So. Anyway. I'm not beefing. I'm not saying it. No, 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 no. No, I get it. I get it. I had a lot of fun putting this together. I hope people enjoyed it. We have three more on the board. They'll drop... At some point, but not in a row. Three more what? Enablers. Is this an enabler? This is an enabler. I thought you said it's not an enabler. No, it is. At the They're top. an enabler. But it's not a series. It's not a series in a row series, but it's a series that's going to be. They're periodic drops, but all of a similar theme. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say, dude. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro. Many Faces. Leaving you is the hard price I pay for being Many Faces, a master of the universe. All right, have a great day. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Our theme music is by Tom McGovern. And we had a new song in here today. We did. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by BlackRock, or is it Blackstone? And it's distributed by Blackstone, or is it BlackRock? Mm-hmm. All of the information about this fucking show can be found at unftr.com. That's all I'm going to say about it because you know why it can be found there? Because 99 is a fucking genius. And she built that site to make it easy for you to find shit out. Remember though, if you're an artist, a graphic artist specifically, if you can go to unftr.com slash artist mm-hmm. and give us your information if you might be willing to participate in a project that we are working on, that would be wonderful. And if you have any qualms with the show, remember to write to Many Faces ben Media. Shapiro. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> to Many Faces Media. <laughs> That's it for now, on fuckers. Love you all. We'll see you soon.
you. <laughs> you all forever. You yourself. You go yourself right now. Biden also tapped. Because <laughs> he tapped him. He tapped him. Biden also. <laughs> God damn it. Inside her. Team building exercise 99.